study when you look at the brothers on the way that the world thinks. What do they say to him? Hey, Jesus, you're doing it all wrong. If you want to be a public figure, if you want to be famous, if you want to really make it, if you really do these works, you're, you're doing everything wrong. You're in Galilee. You got to get to Jerusalem, man. You got to get to the right place. You got to get around the right people. You got to garner the right image. What are you doing, Jesus? And Jesus says, I'm sorry, I do not play the world's games. Show yourself to the world. No, the world hates me, and it has to. What does this word world mean? Because I think this is one of the areas where there's a lot of controversy even within Christianity. So we need to really dig into a great definition here. I love this. The word world here is the Greek word cosmos. And if we don't understand how it's used, it's going to be confusing, probably frustrating for our faith. The Greek word cosmos. And um, this word is, is used, for instance, in John 12. Jesus says, I came to save the world, not to condemn it. Right? It's also used in John 3.16. You guys remember that one? For God so what? Loved the world. He gave himself for it. And yet the writer of John, when he writes his epistle, 1 John, says this in 1 John, he says, love not the world, nor the things that are in the world. Which can be a bit confusing, because it's like, wait, are we supposed to love the world or not love the world? Does only God love the world and we're not allowed to? Like, how does this work out? And the answer is that this word world is used equivocally, not univocally. In other words, it's, it's not used the same in every instance. There's two main uses for this world, for this word world right? Two main meanings. The first meaning is the material universe, the created space, the human. So we talk about the world as earth. We talk about the world as the United States. Some people use the term first word or third world, even though that's become unpopular to say. There's human society. There's the physical world. And what's the Bible say about this world? What did God say when he created the world? It is what? Yeah. God creates the world and calls it good. He creates water. And he says, let the water bring forth dry land. And he called it good. It's good. It's good. Right? Over and over throughout Scripture. Unfortunately, I think what's come down to us in Christianity today is this weird form of Greek philosophy. And it's like, it shows up like this. When the Bible says, do not be worldly, do not love the world, it's talking about the physical material or human world. That's called Gnosticism. That's Gnostic belief. The, the belief that things that are physical are bad and things that are spiritual are good. Right? That's not Christianity. And, and that view shows up in some really like misunderstood passages of Scripture. Here's how it shows up. Prudishness about sex. Negativity toward the arts. Politics are unspiritual. Your work, what you do for a living is unspiritual. If you, if you really love um, material or, or other things like that, if you enjoy some of the finer things in life, that's wrong, that's bad, it's evil, it's carnal, it's worldly. Stay away from it. Poppycock. That's not true. That's nonsense biblically. If you, if you have a problem with that, sometimes study 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 6 where Paul says to Timothy, every created thing is good. Nothing is unclean in and of itself. It's, it's only what? It's, it's how we use it. And there's this tragedy 
where when we say love not the world, somehow that means don't love the physical, material, or human world. We talked about this last week when we talked about Christian hedonism. You guys remember this? God created us to enjoy him through his creation. That the things of this world are are beautiful. Like 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for what? For the glory of God. Or Colossians 3 says, Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the God, God the Father through him. See, because any good thing that's created can become idolatrous when we put it before God. We talked about that last week quite a bit. That's, that's worshiping the creature instead of the creator. That's what Paul talks about in Romans. But God loves us. God wants us to live a life that honors him through the good things in this life. And, and John Piper says it this way, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So we don't have to detach ourselves from the things of this world and demonize them and call everything bad, right? But we can express our love to God by finding their proper use and enjoying them as unto the Lord. You guys tracking? So that's not worldliness. Worldliness is not enjoying the, the physical, material, or human world. That's, that's one definition for world. But the word cosmos also has a second definition, and that is the spirit of the world. A system of thinking. And what does this system of thinking perpetuate? It says this, that the material, the human world, becomes an end in itself. It becomes something that we worship. Another way that we talk about this is the word secular. You ever heard that term? Secular. From the Latin word seculum. Anybody know what that means? It means a period of time or in the now. Worldliness. Worldliness. It's the dayquil. Worldliness is secularism. Timeism. Nowism. Right? The here and the now. Worldliness is an attitude that says, the here and the now is all that matters. That's a worldly mindset. It's not worldly to enjoy the material world, but to make it an end in itself. This way of seeing worldliness is absolutely critical for us to understand. There's some implications of it. Uh, What's the difference in a worldly mindset and a Christian mindset? Um, One one of my mentors used to talk about uh, Joe and Jane. Joe and Jane go to a party. And Joe sees 25 people, and Jane sees 25 people plus 75 others that Joe doesn't see. How are they going to act at the party? The answer is completely different, right? Joe's going to be like stepping on people that Jane sees and trotting over people, and Jane's going to be talking to empty spaces, right? Jane might think that Joe is blind, but Joe's going to think Jane is crazy, right? And that's, that's really a good explanation of the difference between a Christian mindset and a worldly mindset. Because a Christian says the real world of time and space is only part of the real world. Surrounding what we see is the unseen. Surrounding time is eternity. And I refuse to act as if one of those is more real than the other. See, there's a version of Christianity that says the spiritual is more real than the physical. And, and therefore, the physical hardly matters. And then there's this other, that's the Gnosticism. There's this other version of, of this philosophy that says the physical, what we can feel, what we can touch, what we can see, that's all that matters. 
Spirituality is kind of a private thing. Why don't you just keep that to yourself? That's worldliness, okay? So Christians stand between the Gnostics and the worldly mindset. I look not just to the seen, but to the unseen. I look not just to time in this moment, but to eternity. I look to eternity. As a result, a Christian has a radically different way of doing everything. The philosophers, uh, I'm a philosophy geek. Um, there's a philosopher named Baruch Spinoza. He coined the term subspecie eternitatis, right, which is Latin. And what that means is from the perspective of eternity. Viktor Frankl wrote an amazing book called Man's Search for Meaning. I recommend it. Um, in it, he has a quote about this. He says, it is a peculiarity of man that he can only truly live by looking to the future, subspecie eternitatis. What's he saying? What are the philosophers saying? They're saying that we have to move around in time, subspecie eternitatis. We have to move around in this life from the perspective of eternity if we're going to understand the meaning of this life, if we're really going to have significance. We're called to live an eternal life. And we're called to make eternal decisions in this life. And if that's true, there's some implications. One, there's the macro implications. Your understanding of eternity will influence how you live in society. Remember this definition of worldliness, secularism, uh, the here and the now are all that matter? Worldliness is a major source of materialism. If you have a, if you have a corporation, and this corporation says, you know, We've got to make money. We're going to give to the poor also. We're going to help better the lives of our employees. We're going to do all these things for people as long as it helps our bottom line. That is a here and now secular mindset. That's not an eternal perspective. But basically they're making the bottom line, economics, they're making that the ultimate end for which they live. Right, And you can see this, I won't bore you with these philosophical things, but the way the government works in totalitarianism, where human life is always subjugated to the needs of the state, because the state lasts forever and human life is just 70 to 100 years. Right? But if human life is eternal, and the state only lasts 500 to 1,000 years, what matters more? You can't trample on a human life. Right? It works with relativism. It works with every aspect of philosophy on a macro level. It affects how governments work. It affects how we work our jobs. But also, there's a micro way of looking at this. Your understanding of eternity will influence how you live today. If you want to understand worldliness, look at the most extreme secularists in our society. You know who they are? Kids. Kids. Seriously. We have a big job as parents, training our kids to not just live for this moment, but to live for tomorrow and the, and the future, right? Don't blow all your time, money, and energy in the now. Gavin, you should get some sleep. We have an early day tomorrow. I don't care. <laughs> Gavin, you could save that dollar and get Legos at Target later. I don't care. Gavin, you could not eat that and have ice cream later. I don't care. Now, I have my needs, right? <laughs> One of the biblical words for worldliness is profane. You know who the Bible talks about as a profane person in Hebrews? A guy named Esau. Remember that story? Esau, older brother, gets the birthright, 
mighty hunter. He's hunting all night, several days on end, we don't know. He comes up and his brother, Jacob, is, is fixing a bowl of stew. Must have been some really good smelling stew. Esau says, I have to have some of that. And Jacob says, I'll tell you what, I'll give you a bowl for your birthright. And what's Esau say? Yeah, sure. What good is my birthright going to do me if I don't live to see tomorrow? Exaggeration. The worldly mind always exaggerates the importance of the now. I don't care. I have my needs, my urges, my desires now. What was it that made Esau a profane and worldly person? Caused God to say, Jacob, have I loved Esau, have I hated? What was it? He was childish. From God's perspective, the worldly person is engaged in cosmic childishness. A while back, Newsweek had an article about a doctor who works in a clinic for people, that all kinds of people, and several of his patients have AIDS. And uh, he told about one patient he was treating, and the doctor said, has there been any sexual activity recently? And the patient said, yes. And the doctor said, did you tell your partner that you're infected? And the patient said, quote, oh no, Dr. Noble, that would have broken the mood. My urges, my needs, now, cosmic childishness. How are you living Is the now everything to you? Is creation a means or is it an end in itself? See, if you're thinking from a worldly mindset versus a Christian mindset, it makes all the difference in the world. I'm not just talking about whether you're going to heaven or hell, whether you're saved or not. I'm talking about what way of thinking you have. Three examples of what it looks like briefly. First, a Christian has a completely different attitude towards material things. What will you do with that $100 bill? Will you put it in something that you'll consume, that will be gone forever? Is that where you spend all of your resources? Or will you put your money into something that will last forever? Do you put your money into people to build them up, to feed the ones who are hungry, to help them come into contact with Christ so you can live together with them in eternity? Are you focused on the eternal with your money? Or do you put your money only into things that won't last? Are you a cosmic child? I don't care about tomorrow. Now, I have my urges. I read this article back in college. I remember um, I was researching Magic Johnson because uh, he had started doing all this really cool stuff where I grew up, like the Magic Johnson Starbucks and 24-hour fitness. And it's like this really cool stuff to kind of build up the hood, build up some of these areas. And this uh, reporter, I don't remember the periodical, the reporter was talking about it, and, and in the middle of it, he said, Magic Johnson also pays his tithes off these millions of dollars to his church, and he could hardly hold back his incredulity. It was just like, it was like, man, do you realize how much money that is that he's giving away to the church? In other words, it's reporter Joe saying, Jane's talking to the wall again. It doesn't make sense. That kind of generosity doesn't make sense from a worldly mindset, right? Here's my money. That's what a Christian says. I put it into something that lasts. If you're here and saying, that's wild, that's crazy, I don't buy it, you're 
tell you what, you're steeped in the world's mindset. Whether you think you're a Christian or not. A Christian person says, I don't care about my urges. What's, what's it gonna look like next year? What's it gonna look like next life? Five billion years from now, what is it gonna look like? So it changes our attitude towards material possessions. Also, a Christian has a completely different attitude about uncertainty. In the Bible, what is worry called? Sin. Yeah, sin. And often Jesus refers to it as the cares of this world. The cares of this world. Listen very carefully. Guys, if this world is all there is, if it's just the material, if there's nothing else, right, what defines you? Your relationships, your achievements, your success, your riches? What, what defines you? What makes you up? How many friends do you have on Facebook? Why? Because that's all you are. You're just a bunch of molecules, and when you die, you're just going to turn into dust. That's it. Sayonara, baby. But a Christian says literally nothing is the end of the world. Nothing. If you run away saying, that's it, my world's over, this is the end, maybe some of you right now today are in a place where you're like feeling angst, you're worried about something that may have happened or something that may happen, and you're feeling panicked. Would you look at your panic? Maybe you're feeling paralyzed. Would you look at your paralysis? Here's what happens. Here's what you're saying deep down. If that happens, it's the end of this world. It's the end of my world. That betrays you. That's the essence of worldliness, isn't it? Worldliness is the here and the now. That's all there is. This moment, if that collapses, I've got nothing left. The Bible says the mark of worldliness is anxiety. But the mark of a Christian mindset is peace, courage. See, the Christian stands back, takes a step back, and looks at the big picture. This is only part of reality. There's a God. He's in control. He will make all things right in his way. His plan is best. I trust him. I'm in a relationship with an eternal God and I'm living for a life that's eternal. Not just for these, you know, what is it, three score and 10 years? It's average. So bitterness is essentially grounded in worldliness. Why? Because it's the here and the now. I want that person to get what they deserve now. Bitterness. Depression is a form of worldliness because the here and the now is more important than the big picture. This is the end of the world. It's the end of the world as we know it. <laughs> if you're a Christian, you can't say that. The Christian responds to panic by taking a step back and thinking about eternity, saying nothing is the end of this world. It, actually, it might be the end of this world, but my world is bigger. My world is bigger. This truth changes forever our understanding of material things, uncertainty. A Christian can live with uncertainty because nothing's uncertain, really. In the end, nothing's uncertain. God holds it all. It might be uncertain for a moment, but we know something. We know we win, right? You might lose a battle, but we win the war. You might take a loss of yards for a down, but you're going to win the game. Nothing's uncertain. You can hold on to the truth if you believe in eternity. And lastly, it forever changes a Christian's attitude towards glitz. 
fashionable. Like these guys. Fashionable cosmic children. The brothers come to Jesus and they say, you don't do things the right way, Jesus. And Jesus says, you're right. You're right, I don't. Everything about Jesus' life was designed to challenge the world's way. What is chic? What is charismatic? What is fashionable? Jesus was born in the wrong place. He's born to the wrong kind of family. He does ministry in the wrong area. Like everything he does is wrong according to this world's standards. And as a result, Christians have to be people with x-ray vision. You know what that means? We have to see under the surface. It's like that movie Shallow How. Anybody? Where Jack Black's character starts, stops looking on the outside and starts to see the beauty or the ugliness on the inside. Right? A Christian's never focused on temporary, inch-deep view of things, the fashionable, right? What's on the outside? This person has a beautiful soul, though they may be unsightly. This person has a gross soul, though the outside may be beautiful. We don't get caught up in whether people are attractive, intelligent, of this world. The moment we do, we slip right back into thinking of the world. And you're probably, if you're thinking like that, you're probably worried about what's coming up in the future, and you probably have a tough time giving away material things, because it all goes together, right? That's what Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and especially Matthew chapter 6, is all about that. Vanity, worry, and materialism, right? And they all go together. There's this place in Romans 13 where Paul says, the night is far spent. That's seculum, the night is far spent. The day is at hand. That's the eternal kingdom. Therefore, wake up. It's high time to wake out of sleep. What's he saying? He's saying worldliness is a kind of sleepiness. When you're asleep, you're attending to dreams, but you're unaware of what's really happening around you. And Paul is saying, wake up. Worldliness is sleepiness. If only I was more attractive. If only I had gotten that job. If only this opportunity had worked out. If only we had stayed together. If only, if only, if only. Friends, listen, those are dreams. Wake up. Do you know what's solid? The mercies of God, the truths of God. Just imagine the greatness that could happen to you. Imagine what your life could look like to people on the outside, the strength, the stability, the generosity, the compassion, patience. Imagine the insight and the world would not have a way to explain it. Know where it would be coming from? If you stopped thinking and living in a worldly way. Point number two. I spent all my time on point number one, so point number two quickly the world's hatred. Tim Keller says, if you start living an eternity-centered life, the world will hate you. First of all, they'll write strange articles about you in the newspaper and say, why is he giving so much away? He's crazy. There's some ulterior motive here, right? I heard this story about a policeman who would basically, he and his partner would go in and they'd come out and their car would be covered with like notes and money. And this was a common thing in this city because pimps would basically say, hey, this is our corner, here's a tip, leave us alone, here's some money. And apparently the entire like, police department just kind of accepted that as tips. But he started turning them in because he felt like it wasn't a just way of doing things from the perspective of eternity. Are these, are these guys really helping the lives of women in our city? No, he, he started turning them in, and as a result, he lost his job. He was forced off the force, as it were, right? Interesting. 
He decided not to live for the now. And that's what brothers of Jesus are pushing for, the now. But Jesus says, my time is not yet. 2 Timothy 3.12 says this. All, everybody say all. All who live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That doesn't mean every day. Jesus, like, look at Jesus. People loved him. They were attracted to him. Look at the church in the book of Acts. People loved it. They were drawn to the church, but some people hated it. And some people persecuted the church. If you're always being persecuted, you're probably not living right. You're probably being obnoxious or something. But if you're never being persecuted, you're probably being a coward. Jesus attracted people who were awed by him, but he also repelled people who hated him. But nobody ever merely was just like, ah, Jesus is kind of a cool guy. He's pleasant. Are you just a pleasant person? Do you just blend into the word work of the world? Are people being attracted to you or have have people been repelled by you as you stood up for truth? If you're always persecuted, something's off. If you're never persecuted, you're probably chickening out somewhere. But let this be your consolation, the last point, the world's hope. Are you not being persecuted? Well, then look at yourself. Somewhere, somewhere deep in your life, you're probably living from a worldly mindset. But if you are being persecuted simply by trying to obey Jesus, then take heart. What does the Bible say? It says rejoice. Rejoice when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake, for great will your reward be. You know what that means? Anyone in this room that has ever faced some form of persecution for loving God, anyone, maybe, maybe you have lost job opportunities, maybe you struggled relationally, right? Anyone in this room that suffered loss for Jesus' sake, you can know there's a tremendous reward, reward waiting for you. Bible says, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has it entered into the hearts of man what God has prepared for those who love him. Jesus says, you can't imagine. I was watching Star Wars the other day and Han Solo said, I can imagine a great deal, right? Well, if that's true, if that's your mindset, then, then take time to think about it. Think, think of how great that's gonna be to be with Jesus. What's your reward going to be like? The wonder, the awe, the glory, the pleasure, eternal. We're supposed to think about that. That is all yours in Christ. We're supposed to let that overwhelm our hearts. How often do you think about eternity? How often do you think about your life, subspecies eternitatis, in the context of eternity? Or are you just focused on the now? As we close, my my favorite part of this passage, Jesus says this. He says, my time is not yet. And that word time there is the Greek word kairos. means my moment. What moment is he talking about? He's talking about the time, the moment for which he came into the world. Jesus is saying that I'm not going up, even though the world hates me, I'm not going to Jerusalem yet because I have an appointment with death. And I'm going to keep it. And Jesus endured incredible cosmic suffering for us, separated from the Father, crushed under the weight of our sin so that we could be united with the Father. 
And what does the Bible say about that? Do you know what it says about Jesus preparing to go suffer? It says this, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. Jesus was able to face that moment because he had an eternal perspective. Do you see that? He endured the cross because he had an eternal orientation. Jesus lived for his moment so that we could be free to embrace ours. And now, guys, you're filled with his eternal Holy Spirit that's constantly at work in our lives, reminding us about eternity, reminding us what's important and what to live for. So as we close, will you stand with me and close your eyes? Just have three questions as we prepare. Actually, don't close your eyes yet because I think I got the questions on the board. Um, three questions as we prepare for communion. As you come down here to take communion, can you be honest about the areas the world has gotten its hooks in you? Where are you living from a worldly mindset? And can you confess how have you been living for the now instead of eternity? And will you repent and boldly proclaim your faith again in the one who laid his life down for you? And say, how does the gospel of Jesus free me from personally worrying, from materialism, from glitz, from all those things that would drag me down? Let's pray. Father, as we um, stand here and look at our lives in light of eternity, you, you created us to live forever. We will live forever somewhere. And decisions we make carry weight into eternity. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would convict us right now of areas in our life where we are living for the moment and disregarding the truth that we will live forever one, one day somewhere. I pray you would draw us not just to look at our sin, though, which as we take, as we take this drink, as we take this grape juice, we can remember that you paid for our sin, that you washed us clean for every moment that we have ever or will ever get caught in a worldly mindset. Thank you for that. But help us to also look to you, cause our hearts, Holy Spirit, to worship you in the fact that you perfectly every day of your life lived from an eternal perspective. You didn't allow yourself to get caught up in the world's mindset, but in fact, you lived perfectly in a way that actually collided against the world and you were killed for it. Help us to worship you. Cause our hearts to be filled with gratitude in your grace and to move forward boldly with lives that reflect the gospel, that are proud to say, this world is not all there is. I'm living for a much bigger and larger universe. In Jesus' name.